I think a lot of people think that creativity is like a lightning bolt that comes from the heavens and hits a gifted few and you have this idea and you kind of walk out with it. But the reality is, is creative work and the creative process needs some kind of a structure to it. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Hiroki Asai, Global Head of Marketing for Airbnb. Hiroki grew up in Cupertino, California, and knew he wanted to be a graphic designer when he became obsessed with the visual language of skateboard culture. Steady in his convictions, he graduated with a bachelor's degree in graphic design from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in 1991, and then got straight to work freelancing. In the late 90s, he began an 18-year stint with Apple, first through an agency and then in-house as executive creative director and then vice president of global marketing communications. And under his leadership, teams created the exceptional advertising, consumer touchpoints, and creative expressions which Apple is known for today. Now, as the global head of marketing at Airbnb, he's been with the company through the onset of the pandemic, the IPO, and now the recent major updates to the platform, including Airbnb categories, which radically changes the way we are able to search for travel. He steered Airbnb's global brand campaign, made possible by hosts, and is actively and creatively engaged with the in-house teams who are developing the products that are responding to and meeting the needs of a shifting society. And after all his creative contributions to culture, Hiroki remains humble, focused, and just grateful to be doing the work. Here's Hiroki. My name is Hiroki Asai. I live in San Francisco, work in San Francisco, and I am the uh, global head of marketing for Airbnb. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I would love to learn how you got to be the person you are now. So I always like to take it back to the ground zero. (laughs) Will you tell me about your childhood, where you grew up, what your family dynamic was like, the kinds of things that fascinated you as a child? Sure, sure, sure. I grew up in Cupertino, California, which is, um, I actually grew up about a mile from the Apple campus. Ah, so it's, uh, it's been imbued into your very being. Yeah, it it goes way back. It goes way back. I remember when I was a kid, I used to ride my little BMX bike through a lot of the orchards that were around there that are all either Apple buildings or other buildings by now. But it was nice. It was nice. So BMX bikes, what else were you into? Really skateboarding. That was kind of my thing growing up. I remember, I think skateboarding is probably the thing that really got me into 
design, like uh, me into graphics, to be honest. I, when I was a kid, I was just fascinated with skateboard graphics. And one of the things I used to love to do is we, I would get a bunch of my buddies and we go down to the local skate shop. And I remember spending hours and hours just staring up at the wall of all the skateboards that were there and all the different graphics and colors and finishes. And I, I can almost smell it today. It's like fresh urethane and surf wax, you know, <laughs> wonderful <laughs> smell. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on the counters, they would just have these beautiful colored wheels. And I would just be obsessed with just the imagery and the graphics and the whole subculture of it. It just drew me in. What do you think lit you up about that? Was it the fact that it sort of associated itself with another community or that it was just so maybe counterculture even? It was not corporate. Yeah, I, I think it was probably both those things. I just fell in love with the subculture, with the youth culture of it. I loved the imagery of it. And, and this was all, of course, you know, a long time ago, pre-internet. And so there was a lot of magazines and posters and oversized imagery and albums and music, early to mid 80s. It was just intoxicating, all of that imagery. And, and I think that's where I really started to fall in love with the idea of just imagery and, and what it could do and how powerful it was. And did you start creating in that way? I mean, you were clearly skateboarding, but did you start creating your own images or drawing or thinking about how you could participate in that graphic culture? Yeah, I always had a talent and a leaning towards the arts growing up. And so when I was in high school, I used to take art classes at night at the local junior college. And I would take drawing classes and design classes and photography classes. And so high school by day, art and design classes in the evening. That youth culture really influenced the type of work that I was doing, looking at it, being engaged with it, and then creating imagery also was just really satisfying. So if you're going to high school during the day and then taking art classes at night, does that make you a really industrious, like driven teenager? Or does that make you somebody who needed a creative outlet and wasn't getting it through high school? Yeah. <laughs> or a little think, of both. I, th- I think a little of both. I think a little of both. But I- I've always been really, really, really industrious, I guess, to yeah. use your word. I've-, I've always been a really, really hard worker. I knew early on that this is what I wanted to do. And so I wanted to be the best at it. And I wanted to take all the classes that I could. I wanted to get as much exposure as I could. Um, and so that's what led me to you know, take these classes at night. And parents were supportive of this? Super supportive. Yeah. Super oh, supportive. Yeah. That's I, great. I think, yeah. I think just seeing me passionate about something and driven to do something and focused on something. That helps. And if you're in school during the day and in school at night, you're not getting into trouble. So that must have helped too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Better I'm taking photography classes at night than doing God knows what. So yeah, it kept me out of trouble. What were the other growing pains during during your teenage years? It sounds like you clicked into something, a culture, and something that you wanted to pursue professionally pretty early on. You got support from your parents, but like we all go through awkwardness when we're stretching into the adult individuals that we're becoming. So what was that like for you? Part of the draw of that culture, that skate culture, that's probably still the draw today, is there's just an element of danger to it you know, and an element of like critical mass to it, that it just feels like it's all going to explode at any moment. There's a lot of energy to it. And so, you know, I think being a teenager, that stuff is like very exciting. You know, that that imagery is very dangerous and very exciting. And so 
I think it, it was fun to see it. It was fun to like listen to the music, get involved with it, understand the imagery, the people, the artists, and then in turn working on stuff and creating things that were part of that world was fun. It's an expansive process, isn't it? When you're the skate culture itself, like the graphics around it dealt a lot with like momentum and speed and, you know, the physical danger that one might be imperiling themselves with in terms of, you know, skating to the extreme. But then there's also this intense camaraderie of the subculture that feels very much like a knitted together, close knit network that you can kind of be a, be a part of and people you don't even know can identify as friends. I guess what I'm interested in is when you're participating in the creativity of that and you're growing and you're expanding, you must have also felt your horizons just kind of feeling limitless. It doesn't sound like you were too angsty about like, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to be when I grow up? How am I going to support a family? But some people are really worried about that. And it sounds to me like you're in a space where you're you're growing. I don't want to say completely wild, but you have all the resources you need to sort of fully flourish into your creative self. I was also really driven. I mean, I was I kind of knew what I wanted to do in like sixth grade. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of knew that that graphic design was going to be my thing. I'm a little unusual that way where I really I knew what I wanted to do before high school and I, I knew that graphic design kind of was my thing. So that's what led your decision to go study graphic design at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Okay, it did. Yeah, I looked into all the all the private art schools, but you know, our, we didn't have a lot of money back then, and so Cal Poly was great because it was a state school, and I could afford the tuition, and they had a pretty good design program at the time. And so, yeah, I, I went there. You know, me being me, and me being like super hyper focused and a little crazy. Um, I I went to school. You haven't told me about the crazy part yet. (laughs) Yeah, I think crazy and then I'm just a little too focused. Okay. I'm just a little too obsessive about this stuff. But went to college, studied design, and then on summer breaks would go and do internships back home in the Bay Area. And then so I'd commute in the summertime and do internships during the summer. And then I would go to school, do that stuff during the school year. And this was um, this was pre-computer, right? So this is you're doing type by hand. This was way pre-computer, <laughs> way pre-computer. So it was yeah, hand inking with rapidograph pens and ruling pens, drawing Baskerville and shooting it down on a stat machine, and <laughs> you know, waxing type and all of that stuff. All of that stuff. Do you ever miss that stuff? I kind of do. I kind of miss, you know, fiddling with exacto knives and cutting things out and trying to be really detailed at it. Yeah. There's a hand-eye coordination to it. There's a real tactility to it that we don't get the same experience these days. Yeah, there's something about like, you know, having to draw type and cut it up and look at it. it your relationship to it changes. And it does, it's tactile. It feels like you're making something still. It, it you know, it has that tactile really satisfying quality to it, which I miss. When you came out of school, did you feel prepared? Did you feel like a professional? Were you like ready to hit the ground running? Or what were your first few steps into the professional world like? I was pretty prepared. You know, I had done these internships over the summer. And and I remember after my first internship that summer, I think it was even my freshman year in college, 
I realized like, wow, there's a lot of really good designers out in the world. And wow, there's a lot of art schools and wow, there's a lot of graduates coming to San Francisco. And I thought to myself, like, wow, I really better work hard if I want to get a job and like feed myself. And so I was pretty driven, you know, to absorb it as much as I could during the school year. And then I would, you know, do more internships in the, in the summertime. But I learned pretty early on that you really had to work hard in this career and you, you know, you, you really had to go for it. I was pretty prepared when I came out. I started freelancing right away. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So freelancing means you were hustling for your own clients and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, back then it was all, there was a lot of small design studios in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I said to myself, listen, I'm not going to be like the best designer. You know, I, I, I had enough self-awareness to know that I was pretty good, but, you know, I'm not the best and I wasn't going to be the best. And so I said to myself, listen, I, if you're going to succeed, you just have to really work hard. I told myself I would be the guy that would go in, get a freelance job and do anything and be happy to do anything. Wow. That is hardworking. Do you feel like that was a good strategy? Do you feel at times that you maybe sold yourself out or, you know, didn't uphold boundaries and got got exploited? <laughs> yeah, probably. probably. <laughs> I think but, we all go know. through that, right? That's how yeah. we learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that work? Doesn't that <laughs> yeah. basically work? Yeah. <laughs> no. What, what would you say your strengths were? Like a systems thinker? Like where were your strengths and weaknesses? I guess I always gravitated towards systems especially graphic systems I, I really gravitated towards. So I would say that was probably where my strength was at. I think I just worked hard. That hyper-focus is your superpower, it sounds like. Maybe, but I remember one of my first jobs I was freelancing in, the creative director wanted me to uh, to go and get his car washed because he had to go pick up a client. And I remember him asking me, and I remember answering going, Absolutely. <laughs> Anything else you need me to do? <laughs> Did you get it washed and then get a fresh banana and and Danish and leave it in there for him? <laughs> yeah, no, I should have. That's a good idea. I should have. So today you're the global head of marketing at Airbnb. But prior to this, you spent 18 years with Apple. And culturally speaking, those were pretty important 18 years uh, for the rest of us. And I'm wondering what it was like for you what were the biggest lessons you took away from those years? I think the the biggest thing that I learned is just the power of what an in-house creative team could be capable of, as opposed to an agency. You know, um, back then when we started the team, there weren't a lot of companies that were insourcing or investing in extensive creative teams in-house. It was mostly outsourced to agencies. Now, I think one of the things I learned really quickly was how much more effective you could be being in-house because you're so much closer to the problem. You're so much further upstream. And if you're there, you can participate in things that you probably wouldn't have ever been able to participate in in an agency and across other disciplines of creative and design too. And so our group, you know, started as a graphic design group, but ultimately grew in to help launch the retail stores and do design work for the retail stores and then also do um, you know, all of the product launches and the packaging and on and on and on in the website and this and that and all the videos and events. And so our remit kind of grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And, you know, I think the creatives benefited because they got to work cross-functionally across all these different disciplines and across the entire business. I think the company benefited because it got much, much higher quality work that was much easier to get done 
and a lot more, you know, simple to work with when, than a series of outside agencies. So I think I came out of that experience realizing that an in-house group, if it's healthy and structured well and has a great creative CEO running the company, can thrive, can thrive. And I think that group and those creatives can do things that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do if they were an agency. And do you think that the the output is enhanced, is improved because of that? Um, I, I think it is, and I think people can feel it. And I think uh, the experience of the customer or the audience on the outside, when they see all these things that are really so considered, awful, so intentional, yeah, yeah, really considered. Um, I, I think that has you know tremendous benefits. I really do firmly believe that you know the way to do that is to be as close to the problem as possible. As a designer, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I can see the systems thinker and Hiroki really responding to that as well. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, 
will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. You said a couple of things that I think are important. You said if the team's healthy and if this team is structured well. So what are the characteristics of healthy and structured well that are important? Yeah, I, I think healthy is, is these teams can really only exist in a creative culture. And as far as structured well, you know, I, I think a lot of people think that creativity is like a lightning bolt that comes from the heavens and hits a gifted few and you have this idea and you kind of walk out with it. But the reality is, is creative work and the creative process needs some kind of a structure to it and it needs some rigor to it. And within that, I think you also need to, there's this ideation period that you really need to protect big time because, you know, in that period, I think creatives are very vulnerable and they're tossing out ideas and questions and what ifs and asking why and testing those things and reexamining them and testing them and reexamining them. And, you know, that process leads to the idea working through it and the thing that kills that process is negativity bias the thing that kills that process is someone saying well we've never done that before that's not how we do it that's not what works and you have to suspend that negativity and that bias in order to allow people to work through it to ultimately get to an answer that's unconventional and different 
And so I, I think you have to have a structure, environment, leadership that goes all the way up to the top that's really creatively driven that can help to create and reinforce that that ideation space for the process, you know, that very, very delicate period. So there's that delicate period. And then once the idea is out of its delicate period and starts to now need to respond to testing and be justified and hold up against rationale and criticism, what is the structure there? I mean, you kind of hinted at, at rigor and deadlines were you particularly good at sort of measuring and marking out deliverables and milestones? Can you talk about that? Another thing I think healthy creative teams has to have to have is, is like amazing program management. And, you know, it, it's a lot, the way I think about it is it's, you know, we have a very functional organization, the creatives, they're very much like organs of a body, you know, they're designed to do one thing and one thing really, really well. But in order for it to function as a whole, you have to have a circulatory system that delivers information and data and insights and whatever and keeps it flowing to all the other organs, you know, and that goes to a central nervous system and a brain that keeps the whole body. But it gives space for, you know, each of those teams to do what they're best at doing. I love hearing about healthy creative anatomy as a, you know, (laughs) as a designer and an educator. That's what I, I can only hope that, you know, all of my students can be able to creatively stretch their rank wings in a team environment like that just is what I hope for, for them. It's my highest aspiration. So it's a much more satisfying way to work. I think. Yeah. So my relationship with Apple started back in the late nineties when it was really having a, a rebirth and the work that we were doing, we didn't really know how impactful it would be or how big it would be or where it was all going. But, you know, we just, we just felt really, really lucky that we got to help, um, in some way, you know, show the world these unbelievable products. And at the time, it was, you know, first the iMac and then the iPod and everything that followed. And if you've always been kind of a systems guy, then that probably actually really suited you in terms of being able to truly understand what it was that needed to be done across the whole network and then being able to serve that. Yeah, what's what's interesting is, you know, when you're a graphic designer, you tend to just think about the the graphic design of the thing that you're working on. And what I learned over my years there is that, you know, people interact with brands in a whole myriad of different ways. It's not just that specific thing you're working on. They're influenced by the stories they're hearing in the press. They're influenced by the ads they see on TV, what other people are saying, the packaging, the way that the store experiences, the way that the store attendant talks to you. You know, all those things that we all know really, really become real when you're having to think within that context and tell a story across all that stuff. And so, you know, it becomes much larger than just graphic design or just filmmaking. And, you know, it becomes much more exciting and satisfying when you have to think across that entire scope of work. Well, and as a consumer, I can say I think that every aspect of the design, the graphics and the packaging also start to tell a richer story and make the whole experience that much more connective and exciting and soulful when it feels like it's been designed from that kind of depth. And I, I think, you know, people are smart. And I think when they see something of quality, they know that it's of quality and that there's people that care about it. That extends to everything. It extends to the advertising. It extends to the marketing. It extends to the packaging. It extends to the website, the performance of the website, 
Yeah, it's an intangible metric, but you can feel it. Yeah. So personally speaking, from being just out of college into uh, an executive, you had to grow into a kind of leadership role. How you doing? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> ask, ask, ask the people I work with. I don't know. What was that like for you, though? I mean, like discovering your management style and how you work with people and how you're able to like bring out the best in your teams. Yeah, it's funny. I I made a transition. I knew that I was a pretty good designer, but I wasn't a great designer, and I'm never going to be a great designer. You know, I I knew my way around. I knew how to design things, but there's just a lot of really talented people out there. And so I, at some point I needed, I knew I had to make the transition from the doing to kind of the talking and the transition to the talking was tough because your instinct is you, you really want to do, but you know, it, it was, it was a tough transition working with people knowing that they're really good, trying to get the most out of them, trying to all, you know, be on the same page and contribute without actually doing. Yeah. And at the same time, the fact that you have a background in the doing means you can speak the language with a kind of alacrity. That means communication was probably imbued with a lot of empathy and understanding. And like, I know what I'm asking of you, essentially. Yeah. In, in a pinch, I can get in there and edit, or I can get in there and current <laughs> you, type, or you can still the letting and make stuff look better. And, you know, it probably drives people nuts. Whip out your exacto um, knife and your rapidograph and <laughs> get yeah, to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I do have a lot more empathy because I can understand what people are trying to do and what their process is and where the thinking came from. It's been a little while since Apple. You want to connect the dots for me from Apple to Airbnb? Sure. Yeah. So I left at about, you know, 2016. And you know, I'd like to say I kind of like wandered the wilderness for a, for a few years <laughs> and uh, thinking about kind of what was next, what to do next. And was that an existential wandering? Yeah, it was interesting. I, I thought something would dawn on me that if I just left myself open, suddenly an idea would come or an inspiration would come and some vision would arrive. <laughs> but the reality is it just didn't. And the only thing I succeeded in was just driving my wife crazy and driving my family crazy <laughs> all the time. Yeah. A hyper-focused yeah. guy with no focus. That must've been kind of a nutty time for you. Yeah. It, like in hindsight, it probably wasn't the smartest thing to do, but I realized, you know, what I really miss is just working with a small group of people that I really enjoy working with, you know, and it doesn't really matter what context that is. It just needs to be a group of people that I really enjoy working with and working together on something and being needed. And, you know, and I realized that once you just focus on that, on just doing the work, the other stuff comes, like what's important to you, what the next step is, what's fascinating. The world will just kind of open itself up. I guess I learned you have to kind of re-engage with the world in order for it to open up to you. That's That's pretty astute. I think that'll resonate with a lot of listeners, particularly in this moment that's sort of not quite post-pandemic, but I think a lot of people are doing that sort of existential questioning and that re-engagement with the world in order for it to open up. But I also think you said something really profound, which is that you knew you needed to be needed. And that's something that I've also really investigated within myself. And when I'm needed, then I really do feel like I can contribute in the most meaningful way 
um, because there's a pathway for it. There's like an avenue for it. And when I'm not needed, then it feels like I'm just trying to generate my own version of what I think might be needed. And that feels a little bit, I don't know, contrived or weird. So you like working with a small group of people that you really enjoy and you need to be needed and you need to engage with the world. And you did all of those things by how? I was doing a lot of advising and helping out with uh, consultancy and, uh, you know, bopping around, meeting people, doing things. And then I got introduced uh, to Airbnb through some mutual friends. I found it kind of fascinating. I found it kind of interesting. It was it's a whole different generation of Silicon Valley than what I was used to or what I had kind of grown up in. And it was just so different and exciting. And so it was fun. It was really a lot of fun. And then the uh, pandemic hit. Things are a little crazy. And, you know, they, they really needed a lot of help. And so I helped out. I, I dove in. Uh, and it was, it was tough and it was very, very intense, but I loved it. I loved it. And then I was lucky enough to be, you know, offered a position and I really enjoyed the people there. So I took it. So when you say you dove in, what does that look like creatively and professionally? Like what dove into what role? How were you contributing? But any way I could with, you know, the, the amount of business that was lost and the turmoil of the pandemic, the turmoil of the world, you know, like with any company, it was just going through a dramatic, dramatic change. So does this mean like sort of looking at the world and brainstorming ways to adapt? Does this mean product development? Does this mean like actually take like a gut renovation? What does it mean for you to roll up your sleeves at Airbnb? You specifically, Hiroki. There was just a lot of work to be done and a lot of problems and things to be figured out. And I, what I did is I just approached it in the way that I was taught to approach problems, you know, as a creative. And so looked at things from every single angle, looked at what the actual problem was that we were trying to solve, who we were solving it for, who the audience for it was. Yeah, and just dove in. I, I think in times like those, you just work across a lot of different parts of the business and a lot of different different parts of the company. I found it really exciting. I found the people really fascinating. I found the people really smart. Um, and it felt good to be a part of something uh, and helping it in like this really, really, really critical time. The good news is Airbnb made it through pretty well and is thriving. It's still critical. I mean, times are always are, seem like they're always critical, but how has your creative role shifted? Well, what's interesting now is, is we're, we're doing all the creative in-house and we're building all these teams in-house. And what's, what's really exciting is, we're able to work off of one consistent insight that informs the PR, that informs the product, and ultimately informs the marketing. And I think what's really exciting now is that, you know, the world is like just changing constantly. You know, we're, we're coming out of the pandemic. People are traveling. Um, people are living very differently. People are working very differently. And therefore, people are traveling really differently. Yeah. You know, and, and when you think about all of those things that change, Airbnb plays a pretty big role in all of those things. And so what's been really interesting is to see that insight of how people are living, how people are working, how it's changing, how they travel and being, you know, seeing how that then gets applied through the product teams into the product and the features. And then in turn, how that gets applied into um, 
the press and the PR and then ultimately how it gets applied into marketing. And I think seeing all of that and the connection of all of it together against how people are really changing and living and working is super interesting. It's fascinating. It's a sort of macro scale sociology. It would seem to me that that very much informed these epic changes that just rolled out to the platform. Specifically, I mean, I would love to talk to you about Airbnb categories because that completely shifts the paradigm for how we search for travel, search for places to stay. And it's not even just travel anymore. It might mean a temporary domicile because people are working, like you said, they're working in different ways. So what's fascinating to me is how Airbnb seemed to sort of adapt in response to the way that society is adapting and meet it where it needs to be. And that's a really complex creative challenge that that you're taking on here with Airbnb categories, which let's just break down what they are. I love talking about categories because it's, it's super interesting. So, oh, it's so exciting. I'm really excited by it. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's really exciting. And so w- w- what's interesting is there's, there's life before the pandemic and there's life after the pandemic. And before the pandemic, you pretty much had to live where you worked, right? And so that meant that you had 52 weekends a year, handful of holidays, and maybe a two-week vacation where you would travel. And it was a system if you think about it, because you had to be back in town on Sunday in order to show up in the physical office on Monday. It seems so archaic now. For a lot of people, for everyone, that was the way we lived. And that was the way we traveled. Um, And so in that world, you could have a pretty fixed system of search because you know you need a place for two days. You know that you need drive time. You don't want to fly. And so your radius of where you can go is pretty limited. And so that searching in that world is is pretty fixed. But now with the pandemic, for a lot of people, things are totally different. And we're, a lot of us are have flexible schedules or work totally from home. And so if you don't need to be back in a specific location on Sunday, why not just work from that place on Monday? Does a weekend have to be Saturday and Sunday? Could it be Monday and Wednesday? Could it, can you add a day here, add a day there? And so suddenly you find yourself in a much more flexible place, right? And you find yourself open to a lot more possibilities of where you could go and when you could go. And so suddenly that paradigm of fixed search doesn't really apply as much as it used to, right? And so what we realize is like there's this huge world of possibilities that gets opened up to people. And now they have the ability to take advantage of it, but they don't know that it's there. Because traditional search is crazy when you think about it. Because we'll say, okay, Amy, where, where do you want to go, right? And you have to type in some place where you want to go. And you're probably going to think of like five or six places. But there's a lot of places you would never know to look for that exists that are available for you, right? Especially if you're a little bit more flexible. The analogy I love to use is it's kind of like an ice cream store. Uh-huh. Where you walk in and you don't see any of the flavors. Oh. And, and you have to tell the person behind this counter what flavor you want, right? And you're probably going to like, Pick five flavors, vanilla, chocolate, whatever. Mint chocolate chip and pistachio. That's all I can think of right now. Yeah. But you would never know about salted caramel. You would never know about matcha chocolate chip or whatever they have underneath the counter because you just don't know to ask for it, right? Rose water and and tobacco. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so and so the the great thing about categories is it really showcases all of these unbelievable listings in these super unique locations, categorized in a way that really makes them unique. 
you know? So like the design category is unbelievable. I'm sure you've, you've checked it out. Yes. Yes. I've spent hours in the design category and I'm, you know, I feel like my prayers have been answered because as somebody who, when I travel, I always seek out architecturally interesting places. That's what appeals to me. That's what's important to me. And before it was always like a needle in the haystack kind of hunt, just Googling architects' names and then trying to find out if it was actually available to rent. But now it's a smorgasbord of options. It's like the best buffet ever. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's it's totally amazing. You would never know about these places. You would never even know to look for them. Like unless you're searching in Ann Arbor, Michigan, you may never find some of these Frank Lloyd Wrights that we have. And Ann Arbor is not a, a popular vacation destination that comes to top of mind. And you know what else it does? You know, I've always loved a road trip for that same reason is because you find these like out of the way places that you didn't know existed. But now you could even plan a road trip and search the design category along your route. And wow, <laughs> it's really exciting. Yeah, it's incredible. If you go on the site, there's a Jules Gregory home in Lambertville, New Jersey. Now, I've never been to Lambertville, New Jersey, but if I'm in the area, I'm definitely going to stop by and check out that house. Mm -hmm. Well, you can also plug in recording studio, which as a podcaster is something that appeals to me. I wish I was a musician, but I'm not. But if there's a recording studio, I'm thinking I can probably work from there without lugging my equipment with me and I can go spend a month in Nashville of course, it'd be pretty expensive with a, a whole recording studio in the house. But um, I just think it empowers discovery in a way that wasn't an option before when you had to plug in a specific geolocation plus dates. Travel is like one of the most exciting things we do. And searching for that trip and thinking about that trip and planning that trip is almost just as fun as taking that trip. Right. And so why shouldn't the process of discovery be as exciting as the, as the trip itself? Yeah. Well, I know I've got houses saved that I'm looking forward to, which I wasn't for, you know, for a couple of years during the pandemic, I sort of, I think like all of us, we kind of, our worlds got kind of small and we lost a little bit of hope. And so now, even if I can't travel right this minute, I can go there in my mind and I can start planning and I can start feeling those aspirations that I think are actually really important to all of our mental health at this point. Yeah. And as a guest, it's, it's great, you know, because you can see all these places and you can wish list them like, like you did and discover new homes and maybe even think about trips just to visit these homes or, or work from home, you know, but also for hosts, it's fantastic because it allows their unique places to be discovered in a way that otherwise probably would have never been discovered, you know, and it also, showcases what's unique in a way that you couldn't through thick search. And the and design category is something you and I can bond on because it's my favorite and I hear it's your favorite too. But there are so many other categories. How many categories are there? Yeah, so it's over 50. Wow. Categories. Yeah, there's basically a category for everyone, I think. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. 
Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Why is the design category one of your favorites? Oh, I mean, easy. I mean, you should just check out the houses in them. They're unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, talk about dreaming. There's just some unbelievable homes in there. Frank Lloyd Wright's, homes that were featured in Wallpaper, Jules Gregory, Zaha Hadid, Le Corbusier. Not only can you find them now, but I mean, I'm a designer and a design educator. So I'm also particularly attracted to the kind of educational value of attributing these houses to the architect or architecture studio that's responsible for them. Because I feel like that's the human link that we all need to sort of make the house less anonymous, make the actual contribution of this kind of architectural creativity to our built world, like have a human anchor and be able to celebrate it and value it. And it's fun for me to scroll through and learn like, oh, that was done by that studio. That's great. I didn't know I could rent that. And I'm also learning a lot about architecture in other parts of the world by being able to scroll through the different categories. Even yurts and windmills is those are architecturally significant. And now I can scroll through it and really kind of give myself a lesson in culture and design because it's organized like this. It's very exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's so much more of a fun and satisfying way to think and search for travel. So back to you. Through your 18 years of Apple, not really being aware until you have hindsight that you've participated and contributed to like a major culture shaping era. Are you able to recognize now any of the signposts of that now? Like, do you feel like you're doing something important and impactful? What, what I'm really most proud of are the teams that I've been able to work with, you know, and um, the team that we've assembled at Airbnb is, is pretty amazing. And it's just an amazing group of people. It's really, really fun to work with and super talented. You know, I'm really proud of the fact that we're, we're able to create such a powerful in-house creative team that can do everything in-house, which is really rare these days. And it, I think it takes a special kind of leadership of the company, special kind of culture of the company to make that happen. You know, been lucky enough to experience that once. And so experiencing it twice is pretty phenomenal. You've painted a picture of 
a creative team that's actually able to get a lot done because you're in-house. And part of it might be the actual people you're working with. You've got a great team. And part of it might be the in-house part of it. I see a parallel back to the kind of camaraderie that, that first attracted you to skate culture. But I'm wondering if you can feel culture shifting from the sort of creative genesis of it, like where you are. Back when I started, a lot of creatives were out of house and were in agencies. And I think a lot of companies are now making the shift towards building these in-house creative teams. And I actually think it works better, to be honest. But there's, you know, there's definitely a trick to it. And there's definitely a way uh, to make it work well. And I think at Airbnb, we we definitely have a design-driven culture. We definitely have a creative culture. And so uh, our teams tend to flourish and prosper there. Okay, Hiroki, I have thoroughly enjoyed your story. And I really appreciate you sitting down to talk with me. Before I let you go, I just want to know what direction you're pointed in. Like, you did your existential wandering through the wilderness, you've you found a new place to be needed. And what direction does that mean your compass is pointed in? It's pretty simple. I think it's just doing the work. To be honest, I think it's just making sure that we have a healthy team that's thriving, that's excited. And it's just really doing the work, you know, and it's taking it day by day and ultimately just making sure that everyone's having a good time. (laughs) Having a good time. That's something I think we're all looking forward to after these harrowing couple of years. Well, thank you for your role in making it easier for us to do so. Thanks, Hiroki. It was really nice talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for the time. Thanks for listening. To see images of Hiroki and his work, read the show notes. Click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would, please do us a favor and rate and review. It really does mean a lot to us. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. 